Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the acclaimed movie, All of Us Strangers, starring Paul Mescal and Andrew Scott. Stream the new Hulu original limited series, We Were the Lucky Ones, with Joey King and Logan Lerman. And don't forget about Grey's Anatomy. Every Grey's episode ever is now streaming on Hulu. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. This is a podcast from BBC Studios. BBC Studios. A commercial subsidiary. A commercial subsidiary. Of the BBC. You know, you go into the f- woods and then you, you can almost smell the mushrooms. You know, you think, ooh, this looks like a good spot for mushrooms. Welcome to the BBC Earth podcast. A slice of the living, breathing, natural world delivered directly to your headphones. In this episode, we're exploring hidden landscapes. The parts of our planet that we can't see or simply don't notice. We'll be meeting some of the things that live there and making them tell us their secrets. You pick up a mushroom, you turn it upside down, you bring the underneath of the cap right to your nose and you sniff it. And some mushrooms have you know, such distinct smells. It's like a fingerprint. Our first story comes from Long Lit Woon, anthropologist, author, and our guide into the secretive world of mushrooms. They may not look like much, but they have the power to surprise you. The first thing you learn is a mushroom is not a vegetable. So it's its own kingdom. That's amazing. That's one thing. And the other thing is that, you know, what you see, it's just part of the mushroom. Most of it is hidden. It's called mycelium. And this can stretch for miles. One individual mushroom, you know, with one set of DNA, can come from a a huge carpet that is like as huge as, you know, several football fields underneath the ground. This mycelium lies there quietly and when everything is right, you know, the temperature, the moisture, it's almost like the stars are aligned, then the mushrooms come out. Crawling on forest floors, digging among the dank undergrowth for signs of fungal life is not the kind of pastime Wu never imagined for herself as a child. I grew up in Malaysia. We have jungles and um, the jungle is not a place where one goes for a casual stroll or walk. There was this big discord in a way between, you know, the jungle around me and the woods which I read about. Malaysia was part of the British Empire, you know, so I read books in English. And so my book world was, you know, sometimes had woods in them. So it would be something I would have to imagine. When I was 18, I came to Norway as an exchange student. Norwegians are very outdoorsy, you know, they love nature, they love going out, they love hiking going into the mountains and definitely also going into the woods. In fact, you know, every Sunday is is put aside, not for going to church, but for going into the woods, you know. That's that's what they do on Sundays. 
I met my husband when I was 18. Actually, within the first month, I came to Norway. And, um, and we were together ever since. It was always fun to be with him. He was very kind, not just to people, but to, to animals too. And so, you know, animals come to him. After many years together, my husband died very suddenly. You know, he went to work one day and he did not come home. And um, basically, I just fell into a coma. You know, when he died, we had been together for 32 years. It felt almost like all my senses were shut down. I, you know, I, I, I couldn't see. Yeah, I mean, I was not concentrating. I couldn't eat because things didn't taste good. You know, I read books about grieving, but it was like all very linear, you know, phase one, phase two, phase three. It was not like that at all. It was messy. It was confusing. You know, life was a chaos. I was a, you know, it was all chaotic inside me. I didn't know where I was. It was in this landscape, you know, that mushrooms turned up. I went to a bereavement group and everybody had lots of ideas regarding what we could do to ease our pain. Mushrooming was put on the table and um, I thought, yeah, why not? This was something which uh, my husband and I had talked about, you know, joining a, a beginner's course. I had to go there alone. My friend who was going to go with me pulled out at the last minute and then I thought, ooh, can I do this alone? But I did it in the end. First evening theory this is the cap, this is the stem, etc. You know, just the start of how to identify a mushroom. But the second class was out in the woods. So we just walked around and they taught us, you know, how to pick a mushroom because <laughs> it's the correct way of picking a mushroom, you know. People found lots of stuff and the teachers, you know, told us what they were, were they edible, were they not. And then I found a mushroom, you know, on my own. And I knew what it was just from that first class. And that was like really an important step for me. It was a black trumpet mushroom. And this is a mushroom which just looks like a old dried up leaf. But this is a delicacy, very difficult to find. So it was quite special to find that on my first trip to the woods. There was this beam of light that, that shone on me. That was what it felt like. This was a feeling which I didn't know I would ever feel again. The first time I felt joy after my husband died. That was how I got hooked. Mm. <laughs> first you have to learn how to identify basic mushrooms. You have to sharpen all your senses. Then just start looking around because very often when there's one mushroom, there's a good chance that there are several around the place too. 
you know you you develop this sixth mushroom sense when i find this mushroom there's this bubble around me and it's just me and the mushroom and i do not need anything else so i got hooked on mushrooms and um i learned a lot and it took me into the woods which i had not done it woke me up because i needed to sharpen all my senses to identify mushrooms it gave me a, a form of inner peace and i knew that this was what i wanted so it made me go out even more to look for it mushrooming and morning two subjects which seem very disparate you know they were connected to me because mushrooming sharpened my senses woke me up and also showed me the way out of my grief Woon wrote a book called The Way Through the Woods about her adventures into a world of mushrooms and out of the sadness that overwhelmed her I was aware that fig wasps were small, but I must confess it was quite alarming when I discovered quite how small. I think a, a, a well-hidden panic <laughs> was uh, my first response. If anyone knows small, it's this man. This is Alastair McEwen, a wildlife cameraman and a macro specialist. So I haven't been a macro cameraman all my life. I spent 20 years or so shooting larger animals. As you get older, walking up a mountain with carrying 35 kilos is less attractive, and macro doesn't really require that kind of work. So uh, it's probably a sensible move for me as I start to age. Through the high-powered magnification of his specialist lenses, Alistair's tracked down creatures all but invisible to the naked eye, and explored landscapes too tiny for us to see. Macro is an area where you're looking at the smaller creatures of this world, obviously, and the lives of the smaller creatures are often absolutely bizarre and fascinating. Very frequently, it's been the smaller creatures of this world that have literally taken my breath away. 
the problem with fig wasps is not so much that they are small, it's that they fall into a rather difficult area. If you're filming bacteria and such like, you use microscopes, and they are completely designed for dealing with animals of that size. When you're shooting macro, you're working with a range of magnifications, which, you know, something the size of an ant fits comfortably in. The fig wasp tends to fall between two stools, so you have to borrow techniques from microscopy and macroscopy, and that often requires special equipment, which you have to actually think up and design yourself. Sometimes it's exactly that sort of thing that gives you the greatest sense of achievement because it's not only the photography you've done but also quite a lot of the engineering required to do it. It's not just their tiny size that hides the lives of the fig wasps from our curious gaze. It also takes place behind closed doors. Or, more accurately, behind the thin, smooth skin of a gently ripening fig. The shoot was in Thailand, up in the Chiang Mai district, which is up north in Thailand, in a botanic gardens. The story really involves this incredible interplay between the figs and the wasp itself. They're totally dependent on each other. The first step is when the wasp, laden with pollen, drifts down, finds a fig tree and starts to go into the fig. You may think a fig is a fruit, but it's a little more interesting than that. It's actually a thing called a syconium like a flower stem, but flipped inside out. The tiny fig flowers are on the inside, and so is the pollen. The only creature that can get inside to pollinate it is the highly specialised, minuscule fig wasp. And all the drama goes on on the inside. That was what Alistair was challenged to film. The fig has a little aperture at the bottom which the wasp has to crawl into but it has such an effort to go through it that it strips off its wings. Once it starts entering the fig, it's absolutely locked in and it will pollinate the fig, it will lay its eggs and then it will die. It, there's no escape for it. How do you film a creature the size of a comma pushing its way inside a two inch long fig? The answer is to very carefully slice the figs open, position the cameras and hope the little wasps don't notice. Fig wasps, of course, have no concept of what they're actually doing or where they are. So for a while at least, you can expect them to start behaving perfectly naturally, as if nothing had happened. We then had to record the fig wasp going around and, and, so to speak, pollinating the fig inside. The wasp is moving quite a bit at that stage, and with the sort of rigs we were using, it's very difficult to move around too much. So that caused an enormous amount of trouble. Fortunately, I'd had a rig design that allowed me to move the whole camera backwards and forwards, so it meant I could mount the camera a little bit like a microscope to be able to focus on the tiny things I was filming. After that, the little ovules in the fig, which have the fig wasp eggs in them, develop into galls, and it's inside the galls that the egg sits and develops over a period of about a month. The progeny of the wasp develop into the males and females, so the next stage is when the males emerge and crawl around inside the fig to find the females. And they actually mate the females before they emerge. We think of life as a linear process. You're born, you mature, and when you're ready, it's time to breed. Not so for the fig wasp. 
A male emerges from the egg and using a telescopic penis twice his own length, he mates with the unhatched females, his sisters, while they're still in the egg. The females hatch, already pregnant. <laughs> yes, it's uh, quite alarming. The male wasp can even mate with a female without actually necessarily completely leaving its own capsule. The penis is so long. It, <laughs> it is one of the more extraordinary sights of biology that such a tiny creature can extend its penis to several times its length. When the females have emerged inside the fig, they actually have pollen pouches on their chests and they've packed those pouches with pollen from the fig they're emerging from. The males then have a further job to do because the fig females have no way of emerging from the fig until a passage is cut for them through the wall of the fig. So the males then congregate and actually cut a path through the wall of the fig. And when they reach the surface, they attack ants or whatever other predators are on the surface of the fig. And in fact, effectively, they give up their bodies so that the females can emerge and fly off. The ants effectively have their mouths full while the females very quickly emerge and fly off before the ants can get them. And then the, the story is repeated. There are plenty of aspects of this particular project that amazed me. And it's one of the wonders and, and delights of this particular work that so many projects are full of these absolutely fascinating involved stories that just make you wonder at the complexity of the way evolution has sorted out these various systems. I think that's one of the sort of incredible things that keeps me going in this, <laughs> despite some of the problems and demands it creates, because it's just that amazing wonder you get when you see something which is so secretive, so hidden, um, and so impossible, it would seem, to record. You see that on the screen, and you just have this incredible excitement going through you. Alistair filmed the tiny wasps for A Perfect Planet, the latest BBC natural history series. It tells the story of the extraordinary natural forces that make our planet so perfect for harbouring life. The sun, volcanoes, oceans and the weather. Narrated naturally by Sir David Attenborough. Throughout this series of the BBC Earth podcast, we'll be dipping in and out of a perfect planet, bringing you some of the best stories from the other end of the lens. So if you want to follow the fig wasps into the dark, squashy interior of the fig for yourself, you can, without stripping off your wings in the process. A Perfect Planet is out now in the UK, or check the BBC Earth website for when it's coming to you. Parts of the natural world can be hidden from us, by their scale, by their location, or simply by going unnoticed. But our final story is about a world that's been hidden from us by our own actions, and by the passage of time. Imagine you were looking at a satellite image of Ethiopia, in the northeast of Africa, taken a hundred years ago. There weren't satellites a hundred years ago, of course, but let's just imagine there were. What would you see? You'd see a sea of green, an ocean of lush, dense foliage. You'd see that nearly half the country was canopied by thick and ancient forest. Today, we do have satellites. And unfortunately, over Ethiopia, that's not what they see. Today, that emerald ocean has been reduced 
to drops of green ink on a dry brown parchment. What's happened to the forests in a single century? The journey of the last hundred years have been really devastating. As you can imagine, the growing population demands more cropland, more grazing land, more settlement. So that was happening at the expense of forest destruction. Some historian estimated like 40 to 60 percent of the highland was covered by high forest. Then it came now to 4 percent actually. This is Dr. Alamayu Wasi, and he's trying to save Ethiopia's dwindling forests. Alamayu grew up in the northern highlands of Ethiopia, 50 kilometres from Lake Tana, where the Blue Nile River begins its journey to Egypt. For Alamayu, his fascination with the forest began in childhood. In a few small patches, tiny green worlds that survived the onslaught of the 20th century. You could only see such a dense green lush around church because the rest of the landscape is completely bare. Like millions across his country, Alamayu's family belonged to the Ethiopian Orthodox Church. And the Ethiopian Orthodox churches tend to be built in very specific places. Mostly the Ethiopian Orthodox Church in the rural areas, they are built on top of a hill. So they are overlooking the villages. You just climb a hill. Once you reach in a church, then you get in a completely contrast environment surrounded by forest. The sounds of birds, could be vultures, doves, and you see monkeys. You know, you feel as if you are in a jungle. The forests of Ethiopia do still exist. In the small pockets of land surrounding the churches, where nature still rules uninterrupted. I came from a family of religion. All the joy, happiness, the childhood memory, all came, you know, with the church. In fact, I began my primary education from the church. When you go there, you feel some kind of spirituality, uniqueness, you know, tranquility. You don't only associate yourself with God, but actually you read the true, the true nature, the feeling. That's still in my mind. In a landscape where the rest of the land is completely degraded. Why those forests survived? Because the people respect the church and the church teach the compound must be covered by a green nature. That's where we can really still remember Eden Heaven. The Ethiopian Orthodox Church doesn't just protect the flocks of people worshipping under its roofs. It's like a kind of ark, a shelter for every kind of creature and plant, especially those that live on the doorstep of the church itself. Church stewards have become custodians, protectors of a green ring of land surrounding the buildings. Accidental environmentalists with orders from on high. As an adult, now working to restore the forests, Alamayu had questions. What kind of species do we have in church forests? Are they healthy? Are they regenerating well? What is really the problem they are facing? He counted the flora and fauna that could be found at local highland churches, checking up on new growth 
and tracking the species that came and went. The good thing is we have so many species there still sheltered. Not only three species, we have herbs, we have grasses, we have birds, we have mammals, amphibians, we have so many. That's a good thing. One problem came in the shape of the local livestock, farm animals who also wanted a piece of this green sanctuary. Cattle uh, always want to go there and eat up or kill the smaller seedlings, the younger ones. As a result, the regeneration has, has been hampered. So you have only the old and mature ones. You don't have uh, regeneration coming from, from the ground. That means after 20 or 30 years, when the old ones you know, die out, then there is no substitution. So that really worries some very much. Alamayu knew that it wasn't enough to merely observe the forests that had survived. They needed to expand, to grow back. So he got to work. The first step was to get the priests on board by showing them their own forests from above. Some of the priests didn't know that their forests are really disappearing. Now they think they are there forever. So I tried to show them some Goglier's image, a 10 years difference. And then they, they said, oh, what's happening? So now they are really helping. Next, he negotiated the purchase of more land from local farmers and started planting trees and building walls. In a place where it's very difficult to get more land, then we are making a stone wall to safeguard, you know, to preserve the biodiversity. So we make a stone wall around the forest. They are meant to exclude cattle and other livestock, but at the same time, the stone wall can be habitat for small organisms like lizards, snakes, and amphibians. Alamayu hopes that with this work, the forests will not only be restored, but eventually can expand. Once we have them, then we could connect them along a biological corridor and then they become one big forest. So after some time, we will, we will be able to restore. We call it landscape restoration. When you want to do landscape restoration, you need to have stepping stones. So this church forest can serve as a stepping stone. They can be connected and then the whole landscape can be restored. That's my longer uh, time vision. For Alamayu, this twin role of the churches of his childhood as a place for spiritual guidance and ecological protection go hand in hand. When I go to church where I did conservation, my childhood, you know, immediately came back. The nice forest, the sound of the priest, the sound of the bird, the blessing, My profession is helping to strengthen my faith. And of course, my faith is the backbone of my profession, my personal life. I'm happy and grateful for that. You've been listening to the BBC Earth podcast. Stories were produced by me, Emily Knight, and by Eliza Lomas. You can sign up to the BBC Earth newsletter at bbcearth.com forward slash newsletter to get a fix of animals, nature and science straight into your inbox. And join us next week when we'll be finding strength in numbers, meeting some creatures who know how to work together 
and getting lessons in teamwork from the natural world.